Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. How did a 33-year-old entrepreneur and an unlikely cast of characters sell the idea of basketball to a hockey town like Toronto? That's the focus of sports writer Alex Wong's latest book, Prehistoric, the audacious and improbable origin story of the Toronto Raptors. Alex, appreciate you joining us at Maddie Ackler to talk about uh, your latest book, Prehistoric. The words that you use to describe the book, sort of audacious and improbable. Why do you use those words? Because, you know, it's funny, like in, in 95, when the Raptors started here in Toronto, like I was one of those people that they were selling to. You know, I was here in Toronto growing up. I was an 11 year old just discovering sports and basketball specifically. And I remember like being at school, being in this hockey town, you know, how basketball was talked about, you know, how it was a secondary sport and how a lot of people just simply didn't know much about it, didn't care much about it. As I was working on this book and really diving into the origin story of how the Raptors started up as an expansion franchise, there were just all these bits and pieces of things coming together, like the season ticket drive, them playing at the Sky Dome to start, and them having to educate fans on how to watch basketball. Like all of it just seemed like in those words described in the subheading of the book, like it was audacious, it was improbable that this somehow all worked. Let's talk about the actual roster that gets built on a team. How does an expansion team actually get put together in the NBA? If you ask the owners at the time, you know, John Bitov Jr. and the rest of the ownership group, they would tell you that the expansion draft process of putting together a first-year roster was very unfair in, in terms of just competitiveness because every other team in the NBA was allowed to basically protect eight players, basically protecting their best players. So all you're left with are guys with either really terrible contracts that they no longer want or younger players who they had drafted who hadn't panned out. So it's basically you're looking at a list of guys that like nobody else would really want. And that's really how the Raptors team was built to start through the expansion draft. A lot of names that people had honestly like never really heard of. You talked to a lot of people for this book, 140-ish Yeah, people. around there, yeah. Uh, and we're talking basketball players who are on the roster, coaches, uh, upper management, and even to people who work the day-to-day, marketers, day- game ops and such. People who are fans now, whether you're a casual fan or you've been following this team, they would never recognize these names. Why was it important to share their stories? It's one of the things that people always talk about is just the diversity of the fan base and you know how it's so inclusive of people of different cultural backgrounds in the city. And when I approached this book about telling the beginning of the franchise, what fascinated me was trying to paint that same lens um, through the diversity of the people that helped put this team together. You know, I think about the different backgrounds that these people came from, people in the marketing team, people who worked on the dance pack, um, people who worked on the broadcast team. Um, you know, you talk about the players having different backgrounds as well. Some of them obviously coming from, you know, traditional American backgrounds. There's a lot of European players as well. Um, it was important to me not to just collect these different perspectives Um, to help the readers understand exactly all that it takes to building a basketball franchise in the NBA, 
but also to spotlight all the people who are involved because the Raptors are this growing franchise. They've been here for, you know, almost three decades now in the city. I wanted people to know that since the very beginning, it's had a very diverse history and background, even through the people that worked with the team. You had mentioned John Bitoff. Tell me, why is he important when we look at the Raptors' legacy? John was, like you mentioned, he was 33. He was super dynamic and he was different. Like, you know, when you think about the traditional sports owner, you know, they, they might be, you know, a little bit more older. They might be less creative, I would say. John brought a hyper creative energy to the entire Raptors organization. And if you think about the Raptors, you think about their original logo, you think about their name, you think about, you know, the dance pack, you think about all these things that were very 90s and were very dynamic. It was very different. It was not traditional. This was all the genesis of John's ideas. Like he didn't want to be the Toronto Maple Leafs. He didn't want to be the Toronto Blue Jays. If they were going to start a brand, if they were going to start a franchise, he wanted something that would appeal to what he described as New Canada which was women, children, and immigrants. And he thought that those demographics were not being appealed to by other sports teams. So everything in this book, everything about the beginning of the Raptors, like John has his fingerprints all over it. Did he succeed in that? To me, I can say definitively that he did succeed. You know, if you talk to Raptors fans today, they now yearn for the purple uniforms. You know, there's a nostalgia about what the Raptors were like back in the day, you know, beyond the fact that I think everybody knows like that wasn't a winning product in the very beginning, but there was a lot of excitement. And, you know, he played a huge part into making basketball and the Raptors cool here in the city. And I think it's had this like long lasting impact, like even to present day. I'm hoping you can help explain what is the job description for someone who's trying to start an NBA team from scratch? Yeah, I love that you asked me this question because this is literally one of the first questions that I asked John when I met him at the office to start this book because I was trying to figure out exactly all the stories that I needed to tell. So for John, you know, I think when you're the owner and when you're starting a team, the one first thing is you have to just hire people and surround yourself with people who can help you. So what he did was he pulled from a lot of different executives who had past NBA experiences from other teams. So people would come in from sales, people would come in from basketball operations. And you know, when you talk about the job description, when you sit down, the first thing that you have to do is you have to sell tickets. So once he got the team, there was a mandate from the NBA that had to sell 15,000 season tickets in the first year. So he hired a bunch of people basically off the street, kids in their 20s, and they were basically just cold calling people around the city for corporate sponsorships. They were calling individuals. The salespeople that I talked to talked a lot about how there was a lot of resistance in the city, like corporate sponsors didn't believe in investing in a basketball team. So it was a lot of challenges, but it was also kind of this like exhilarating experience People were leaving their jobs to take a chance to join the Raptors, and some of them ended up doing that. And many of those people, those salespeople who were in their early 20s, some of them are now execs on like sports teams. Part of this job was to get people excited, but also explain to them how basketball is played. And one of the responsibilities sort of lied on the broadcasters in a way. Yeah, so you know, in talking to Leo Rounds, who's obviously still involved with the Raptors broadcast today, when he was doing color commentary in that first year, like he would have a segment called rounds, you know, round ball. And what he would explain was very basic things. And when I mean basic things, it was like explaining what a travel is, explaining what a legal defense is, explaining what a technical foul is, or even explaining the fact like, oh, like certain um, positions in basketball, point guard is called a one. 
you know, a center is a five. So they were very conscious that there was a new audience that was tuning in that might not know, understand basketball. You talked about this, a new audience and part of that new audience and the strategy behind it is a logo. Tell us a little bit about the changes that they had to make to sort of make it marketable to the audience that they wanted. John Bitov was very adamant about not wanting blue to begin with because he said he wanted the brand to be global. You know, he thought blue with the associations with the Maple Leafs, with the Blue Jays, like would kind of limit him to being just a brand that people associated with Toronto. He also didn't want red to begin with because he didn't want to really lean into kind of the Canadiana theme. So originally the Raptor, the retro Raptor that is, that ended up being red was lime green. Like that was actually the one that was submitted to the league. And Commissioner David Stern actually stepped in. I think the conversation basically went, you know, the Raptor logo was already a little bit out there. Like if you compare it to traditional basketball logos like the New York Knicks, the LA Lakers, the Boston Celtics, and David Stern basically stepped in and told John that, hey, we need something that does market to Canada. You are one of two Canadian franchises at the time with the Grizzlies. So John reluctantly agreed to change the Raptor to red. But if the NBA hadn't stepped in, it would have been a lime green Raptor. And I actually don't know how that would have turned out. And it would have been one that would have looked less or more ferocious because they also made some changes to make it a little bit more kid-friendly as well. Yeah, so when they were designing the mascot, which was basically based on the logo, what happened was the first designs of the mascot, his face, I think there was like, you know, the, the teeth and all that stuff, his facial expression looked really intimidating. And when they put it on and when they test marketed it, I think they realized that this would actually scare the kids that were coming to the Sky Dome. So John actually took... I think he took a knife and he just basically carved out what he wanted the the mascot to look like. And that's still what the mascot looks like today. How did the organization make basketball appealing to a hockey city? What was the work that was being done sort of on the community level? Yeah, you know, they had an entire community relations team. And what they did was they reached out um, Al Quance, um, who's, you know, had us a long history with basketball here in Toronto and in Canada, led the um, the movement, they reached out to ambassadors in different communities. So they would find people who were running basketball programs at community centers already in the Chinese community, the black community, the Filipino community. And they would go out, find these people. And what they created was something called a Bell Raptor Ball program, which was a program designed for kids to show up to the gym and they would teach them skills and hopefully eventually get them into playing recreational basketball or at a more competitive level. Um, so this whole program was distributed out to different people. And I reached out to um, Clement Chu, who ran a nonprofit organization at the time called CCYA, which was focused on Chinese Canadian youths. And he had actually connected with um, Al Quance and the Raptors in 95, started this program. And it's wild to me because I know CCYA because my nephews who are 11 and nine go to those programs today. You asked me previously about the connections between like the past and the present and things like that. You know, the groundwork that the Raptors laid in terms of the community work, that is also another kind of through line that still continues today. Great stories about players like Damon Stoudemire, a great story of Tracy Murray, and of course the late coach uh, Brendan Malone that really painted the picture of the struggles of an expansion team. Is there a story that sticks out to you uh, that you told that uh, you can share? This team won like, I think like 21 games. 
in the first season when I was reaching out to people in the organization, a lot of them were really excited to talk to me. But a lot of them also asked me like, oh, why are you actually writing a book on this team? Like we didn't do anything on the court. Um, so to me, like a lot of the funny stories is just like the team, the players, especially getting used to the city of Toronto. And one of my favorite stories was John Sally was a veteran. He had been on the bad boy Pistons, very established player. But like I mentioned, one of the players taking an expansion draft where he was towards the end of his career. You know, when he came here, one of the first things that he did was he called the PR team and he told them that he wanted to take every opportunity in the city to like market himself. He wanted to start a nightclub called Sally's Alley. Like he wanted to start his own underwear brand. He was a big um, kind of club promoter too. So like one of my favorite stories was like he actually had a New Year's party uh, that he hosted, invited a bunch of A-list celebrities that showed up. I, I believe Samuel L. Jackson was there. Um, R&B singer Faith Evans was there. All the players were there. And it was by, um, you know, the docks, like on, um, you know, downtown. And what happened was things got so out of control because, you know, it went over capacity. There was an issue with Kocek. Uh, people obviously had a lot to drink that at the end of the night, someone actually drove their car onto the like frozen lake and it ended up on the front page of the Toronto Sun. And Isaiah Thomas, who was the general manager at the time, you know, like we mentioned, the Raptors were trying to build this reputation in the community, et cetera, et cetera. He was so upset by that. And John wasn't, John Sally wasn't really playing that much that that incident pretty much led to him getting waived like two weeks later. And then Jimmy King, who was the second round pick of the team, you know, this was his first time coming to Canada. Like he talked about living in Etobicoke and how he would travel around the city, you know, go down Young Street, discover his favorite Chinese restaurants. He went to his, uh, he went to watch uh, Phantom of the Opera and Oliver Miller talked about how one time, you know, there was such a huge snowstorm outside and he had to go to practice. But when he opened his garage, he couldn't get out of his driveway. So it took him two hours to shovel and get to practice. And he was late. And Brendan Malone was like, he was really hard on the guys at the time. It was all about discipline and stuff. He actually held up practice and waited for Oliver Miller to arrive uh, before they started practice. So there's all these funny stories about them just dealing with kind of the nuances of, of Toronto and being in Canada for the first time. Of course, there's no snow on the East Coast of the U.S., <laughs> right? Of course. So yeah, it's, this, it's is, this, is, uh, this is always the thing is that, um, and a lot of the players too, when I talked to them, like when they were taking the expansion draft, people were describing Toronto in those ways. Like a lot of, um, you know, Ed Pickney, who was another veteran that was picked, remember his friends being like, hey, you know, it snows there every day. Like they've never heard of basketball, all this stuff. And, you know, the funny thing is like, I, I wanted to spotlight those stereotypes because a lot of these players, if you read the book, you'll, you'll realize they end up falling in love with the city. And I think that still holds true today. In most cases, they're the biggest champions of this city. They're like, I, this is the best city to live in. Uh, which brings me to this question, actually. Did Damon Stoudemire start this narrative or stereotype that star NBA players don't want to play in Toronto? Because, of course, his exit was one that, you know, a lot of people were quite surprised at. It was very public and one that you felt that you grew up with this guy and uh, he's got a big smile on his face and he wants to go back home. I think just over time, people have started to conflate the fact that there's, you know, unhappy superstars in the NBA with the fact that if they're in Toronto, it adds another element because they want, they don't want to be in Toronto. They don't want to be in Canada. Like I think for anyone that follows sports and especially basketball, you know that player movement is a very huge thing. It was back then. It is still today. Players get traded all the time. They move in for agency, especially superstars, try to dictate where they want to go. I think about Damon Sotomayor. Think about Vince Carter, you know, moving on as well. 
think about even Kawhi Leonard, like winning a championship and deciding to go home to LA as well. You know, I don't think it's really a Toronto thing, to be honest. You know, I think this is just how the NBA works. Damon at the time was not happy because the team wasn't doing well. And I, I don't think that would have been any different if he was playing in New York, in Boston. But it's it's just that when a when an athlete from Toronto or when an athlete on the Raptors is unhappy and requests those things, I think suddenly there's kind of an insecurity with the fan base um, of, of saying that, hey, like we're not good enough, we're not good enough. But usually, most of the times, it's, it's just about whether you're good enough on the court. That's when most guys want to leave. The Toronto Raptors, as you mentioned, is Canada's sole NBA team. What is the likelihood another team joins us north of the border? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, recently talked about how, you know, they would be interested to looking at maybe Montreal, maybe Vancouver as viable cities without obviously committing to the fact that they are looking specifically at those places. To me, if I were to be realistic, like, I feel like this is something that's not going to happen in, in the near future. You know, the, I think around NBA circles, there's an assumption that when the expansion cycle comes around again, the next two teams are going to be in Seattle and Las Vegas. And just unfortunately, you look at the demise of the, of the Vancouver Grizzlies, you know, I think it'd be a huge risk. It'd be a huge risk for the, for the NBA to take another chance. Now, do I think, you know, an NBA franchise could thrive today in a Montreal, in a Vancouver? I think definitely. I think basketball has continued to grow here in this country if you compare it to when the Raptors came in 95. But if you ask me realistically, I think there's just a lot more different locations in the U.S. that is less risky and more viable for the NBA in, in, the, in the near term. All right. So my last question to you, I'll admit when I got to this part of the book, it was near the end, my heart melted a bit because you you take us through this whole story of, you know, call them misfits, call them, you know, an unlikely group of people to come together. And these folks still to this day, and we're talking players to the coaches to the staff members, still keep in touch. Uh, they still see each other regularly. Obviously, COVID interrupted some of that. But tell me about that because I, I honestly was like, that is we're talking about 25 plus years and it's just like, this is the sweetest thing. Yeah. I, I you know, when I set out to, to work on this book and, you know, talk to all these different individuals, like you mentioned, I didn't know that. But as I started to talk to everybody, you know, they would start mentioning that, Hey, like I still keep in touch with this person. I still keep in touch with this person. So they recently had their 25th anniversary reunion. And what happened was like you mentioned, because of COVID, they weren't able to have an in-person celebration. So what happened was a series of zooms were set up. And John Bitov was on a Zoom with Isaiah Thomas. And then Samuel L. Jackson, who was a celebrity fan in the first season, popped up on the Zoom. I was able to see just the camaraderie and just the connection that these guys have, all because they all work together to like start this franchise. And this summer, you know, they were actually able to organize an in-person reunion finally at Real Sports. And I was able to be there. John Bitov was there. Isaiah Thomas was there. Members of the broadcast team, the dance pack game ops and they got together and they were just you know i was there just kind of fly on the wall watching them just kind of reminisce about everything so i think that's one of the most beautiful parts of this book you know i think there's a lot of funny and quirky stories in there and i think people reading this book will get that kind of vibe of like they're they were part of a startup um trying to figure this out on the fly but it's also the relationships that were built and the connections that were made and those are still present today
The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.